The Macro View, Episode 26. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. There were two central banks in the United States before the Federal Reserve. There's actually three, but two under the Constitution. The, the other one was under the Articles of Confederation. It was called the Bank of North, uh, North America. But under the Constitution, the first bank of the United States, which was chartered for 20 years, began in 1811, or excuse me, in 1811, did not have its charter renewed. So it began in 1891. And then in 1816, James Madison signed a charter for the second bank of the United States, only to, in 1828, have Andrew Jackson as the pre- elected president. Jackson vowed to not renew the second bank of the United States charter. So from 1837, when the charter expired, till 1862, typically it's been referred to of uh, as the free banking era. In 1863, you had the National Banking Act. But prior to that, there were only state chartered banks. Banks issued notes that uh, could have been in the form of gold denominations or in the form of checks uh, that could be written against uh, gold in uh, their gold deposits in any denomination. And uh, sometimes also banks would accept other commodities as well. But in 1863, the National Banking Act was implemented. and implemented a, a uh, national banking system that that had quote unquote higher standards. Uh, this was known as the Greenback Era, which uh, Murray Rothbard in uh, History of of Money and Banking of the United States uh, documents ad nauseum uh, the Greenback Era. It's a really good book. You can find it for free actually in PDF form at the Mises Institute's website, Mises.org. So since the late nineteenth century. A populist movement called progressivism really swept through uh, the Republican Party. In 1896 presidential campaign, in the 1896 presidential campaign, William Jennings Bryant, uh, staunch populist, took over the Democratic Party, seizing the opportunity of of the dissatisfaction among Democrats with the Cleveland era. Brian turned the party from a gold standard hard money party to a greenbacker and cheap and plentiful silver standard party. Brant would go on to lose the election, but he did shift permanently the ideology of the Democratic Party. For nearly three generations, the Republican Party had been a WASP-dominated, pro-big government, anti-gold standard, pro-cartelization party, um, also very staunch on social issues. And again, this would change at on the surface at least, in 1896 as well, with the Ohio-based McKinley Republicans, also known as Rockefeller Republicans nowadays, how we refer to them. They're all sort of on the payroll of Rockefeller. But with these Ohio-based Republicans taking over the Republican Party and Democrats moving towards progressivism, the Republicans began shifting their positions on social piety to capture the electoral block of German Lutherans in the Midwest that had been alienated by the changes in the Democratic Party platform on an econ- from an economic standpoint. McKinley would go on to defeat Bryant, and in the election of 1900, McKinley was reelected. But toward the end of his first year in his second term, in September, at the Pan American Exposition Fairgrounds in Buffalo, New York, while conducting a meet-and-greet, McKinley was assassinated by communist, uh, communist Leon Solzgoz. And he was a follower of the well-known communist 
uh, communist activist Emma Goldman. So the more progressive uh, sort of status strongman Teddy Roosevelt, the vice president, succeeded McKinley as president. And all the while, the pitch for centralized bank was underway, especially in progressive circles. As mentioned earlier, the National Banking Acts established national banks and were the first lasting and successful attempt to cartelize banking or to create a cartel of banks. Successful from the standpoint, I don't say successful from the standpoint that it's been good, but successful from the standpoint that the acts passed were signed into law and upheld in the courts. So quoting Rothbard from, uh, from I want to quote Rothbard from, from Money and Banking in the United States, a second and more lasting intervention was the National Banking Acts of 1863, 1864, and 1865, which destroyed the issue of banknotes by state charter or state banks but through a prohibitory tax and then monopolized the issue of banknotes in the hands of a few large federally chartered national banks mainly centered on Wall Street. <clears throat> in a typical cartelization, national banks were compelled by law to accept each other's notes and demand deposits at par, negating the process by which the free market had previously been discounting the notes and deposits of shaky and inflationary banks. So in an innovative fashion, that was the end of his the quote from, from his book, but in, in innovative fashion, state banks... Basically prohibited from issuing their own notes, grew loans and deposits on the back of national bank issued notes. During this time, the state banks really did flourish. And again, to quote Rothbard from Money and Banking in uh, History of Money and Banking in the United States, these state banks, free of high legal requirements that kept entry restriction in national banking, flourished during the 1880s and 1890s and provided stiff competition for the national banks themselves. Furthermore, St. Louis and Chicago after the 1880s, provided increasingly severe competition to Wall Street. Thus, St. Louis and Chicago bank deposits, which had only been 16% in 1880, 16% of the the St. Louis, Chicago, and New York City total in 1880, rose to 33% of that total. So if you were to combine the three St. Louis, Chicago, and New York City in 1880, there had only been they don't St. Louis and Chicago only accounted for 16% of those three cities deposits by eight, by 1912 that had rose to 33%. So all in all bank clearings outside of New York City which this is still quoting Rothbard so I took a little digression there which were 24% of nas- the national total in 1882 had risen to 43%. So 20 uh, bank clearings Outside of New York City were only 24% of the national total in 1882. They had risen to 43% by 1913. So banks used the word inelasticity, meaning an unresponsiveness in the money supply to the price of interest. In their words, this inelasticity created deflation. And it made it hard for banks to meet depositor demands in specie, given that the lint specie was now more expensive the value of money had risen, so to speak, due to an increase in the supply of consumer goods, which primarily was driven by technological investment that was made possible by savings and capital investment. It was not deflation per se, but rather throughout the last, throughout the, the 19th century, especially the late 19th century, prices had been falling slowly, though list prices declined slowly as well. 
it was mostly discounting and rebating that was used to uh, to compete with each other and to lower prices without actually lowering the list prices, which some companies feared would would uh, give way to their their competition lowering it as well. So they tried to keep prices the same and then actually rebate and discount customers. <coughs> Excuse me. Nonetheless, banking panics among the national banks would occur from time to time, and the cause was either ignorantly or sinisterly deemed to be a result of this deflationary pressure caused by the inelasticity of money, not rather the fractional reserve demand deposit system that allowed that had been allowed to operate in the cartelized fashion across national banks. In response to these banking panics, the government would allow banks to suspend specie payment. That is, they'd allow banks to not pay depositors back on demand in gold in order to keep the banks operating and quote-unquote solvent. These measures obviously failed, and as, as it left, the money that was, that was owed to depositors in the hands of the same bankers that had already invested that money in projects that were not paying off, and that was why or that they weren't generating enough cash flow or took too long to mature. And that was why banks were having cash shortfalls when depositors came demanding their money. They'd frag, you know, they, as we talked about a couple times over the last couple of episodes, fractional reserve banking your, allows banks to lend out demand deposits. So when you end up having two claims to the same money and eventually – you know, on on large scale, you can you can kind of imagine how that uh, how that could all fall apart when one 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 claim starts wanting the money and the other claim has already used it. So the the last sort of the last of the sorts of, of banking panics that led to uh, that led to the emergence of a uh, a pitch for an, another central bank and a strong one, one that would ultimately win out and succeed was the pa- the ban- panic of 1907. So we are going to dive into the panic of 1907 and the subsequent emergence for the pitch for another central bank, the Federal Reserve, and how that pitch would ultimately win out during the progressive era. And we're going to do that right after this quick message. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a full history of Western civilization, John Maynard Keynes, his system and its fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. After the panic of 1907, opinion among bankers and corporatists was very much a pro-central bank mentality. The uh, American people, while a little bit more open to the idea now than they had been the past 40 years, were still very skeptical. The pro-central bank forces had to really mobilize the, uh, the, the opinion of the, the American populace and kind of try to shift it. So I think at this point it probably would be worthwhile to digress briefly and talk a little bit about the political scene 
leading up to the creation of the Fed. So after the 1896 election, the shift in ideology guiding political populism went from one of piety and social differences to one of economic opinions. And this left many of the uh, many of the former Republican base, that is the the Christian evangelical Protestant fundamentalists, uh, it left them with no one that they felt they could consciously support. So previously, pushes for prohibition and uh, you know things like the imposition of social views and blue laws, which are like Sunday uh, Sunday laws, can't eat ice cream on Sunday and stuff like that. And there's still a bunch of them on on city books, although they're never enforced anymore. But the imposition of these views, and they used to be enforced quite quite harshly, uh, you know, the imposition of these views from, through government force had fallen upon, upon kind ears with Republican politicians, and it really pushed the German Lutherans and Catholics into the arms of Democrats. And because of the demographic shift, first of all, both German Lutherans and, and, and um, Catholics were having more children. So there's – and primarily – yeah, and this is around the same time where primarily uh, immigration was coming from Ca- German Catholics, German Lutherans, and other from other Catholic-dominated countries. So there's <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about how uh, you know Republicans, like they've they've talked about in, in recent history, how Republicans may never win another election. That you know, this seventy or eight, I think in in eighteen ninety. The um, it was either eighteen ninety or, or the eighteen eighty eight election um, for the congressional election. The House shifted from fifty one percent Republicans to seventy one percent Democrats almost overnight. So during this time, you know the elections were primarily focused around social issues leading up to this. You know, with all almost all economic issues were pitched in one way or another as being tied to the social differences and religious differences of the party. And after 1896 voter turnout as a percentage of the eligible voting populace actually began to decline precipitously. And that was the beginning of the trend uh, towards declining voter turnout and participation, something that has continued to this day. So prior to the 1896 election, elections were really all about the mobilization of the party's base Today, elections are all about appealing to independence, and the 1896 election is where that trend began towards sort of the modern political epochs, epoch, so to speak. So, the uh, the reason that it, it is important to kind of understand is that politics in the U.S. prior to 1896 was fervently ideological. So each side really, really stuck to their guns, uh, flip flopping and shakiness on issues and. Any tendency towards being a centrist would cost candidates the election. Today, political ideology is 100% malleable. Today, political ideology is all about riling, you know, riling up the group in front of you with the right quote, you know, quote unquote rhetoric, you know, at the right time. And shakiness and ideology is actually rewarded, as we've seen. So being able to flip flops, you know, people say, "Oh, well, you're pra- pragmatic." You know, they're just being pragmatic. That's not what they actually believe. And you hear that all the time coming out of, especially the the uh, Republican Party recently, who's uh, moving very, very far away from the idea of uh, even pitching free markets. And so maybe touch on that a little bit later. But why is this important? So for a couple of reasons. First, elections back then were won and lost often by razor thin margins. They're very close elections. 
nominations, you know, often were stolen at, you know, what they would refer to as stolen today at conventions. And uh, there were elections thrown to the House of Representatives a couple of times. The two parties resented each other. Uh, They actually believed that the ideology, not just the people and the party name, but the actual ideology underlying the opposing party was evil and was inherently sinful. And this began to change in, uh, in the late 1800s as politics became less about religion and more about people's pocketbooks and as the progressive movement started to catch on. So I'm going to hold myself back from explaining, from expanding upon and explaining sort of the roots of the progressive movements. Um, but I will have to do you know, at least an episode on this in the near future, or at least one episode. While it's important to understand how you know fully – and really, truly understand how anti-capitalist, pro, you know, the pro-statist uh, and pro-state endorsed monopoly and cartel corporatists actually are the ones that began and used the progressive movement to implement their economic agenda to prevent competition and to cartelize industries. And you know why we are where we are today. I really just don't have time on tonight's episode because I got a lot to cover. But I will have to get to an episode covering the uh, early days of the progressive movement who actually started the progressive movement, you know, where it came from and, uh, and what was it that, uh, you know, what was it that, that made it so popular? So one of the features of the progressive movement though, uh, one that would prove to be invaluable to the creation of the federal reserve was the use of the new intellectual class, the professional academic in making their, their pitches for all sorts of stuff. So back then academics primarily and, and particularly Economists were primarily uh, apolitical, so but there were calls by prominent politicians of both parties, however, for for economists in particular to drop their apolitical "quote unquote" nonsense and uh, enroll themselves in the "quote unquote" you know, service of the country as advisors to politicians and particularly to presidents. The Progressive Era promised to end the era of ideological convictions leading to policy conclusions that were not rooted in science and adopting a new intellectual take on politics when those practical and pragmatic and planned out by the smartest and most unbiased academics of the time. So th- that was what the progressive era was really about. It's what they say. Uh, if you don't, if you're not hearing my sarcasm, the sarcasm in my voice, I apologize, but it's, a little bit ridiculous, but that was what the progressives promised was that science and these really smart people, these bureaucrats would be able to plan everything out. We'd have wonderful dandy lives. So basically science became an excuse for central planning and, and a large bureaucracy at every level of government covering every single thing you could possibly think of headed up by apolitical quote unquote, apolitical academics and intellectuals, of course, we all know how that's worked out, and the Austro-Libertarian movement is the only ideological movement that has had a wave of critiques on the arrogance of elitists to think that they actually can plan the preferences of never-satisfied consumers and do so in a way that's more effective than the quote-unquote risky and unstable ventures of entrepreneurs to you know use resources – you know, these entrepreneurs are so greedy that they're using these resources to generate a profit instead of to meet the common good. And, you know, I think probably the best is calculation in the socialist commonwealth, uh, which is excellent. 
written by Mises. And it's an important critique of central planning due to the fact that it points out that even if you could change human sentiment to be one that did not suffer from the incentive issue, you know, if, for those familiar with the flaws of Marxism, the incentive issue is a very big problem that uh, you know most Marxists nowadays just admit, yes, there's an incentive issue, but if we can create a new type of human, a culturally egalitarian human that would just get along and wouldn't care about those incentives, that that it would work under that scenario. What Mises pointed out was that even then that Marxism would fail due to a calculation issue in a rationed non-market system of economics with no prices. And something that later on tonight's episode, um, the, you know, I, I really can't go into a little anymore, but I'll leave it there. You should go read so, you know, Calculation of Socialist Commonwealth by, by Mises. This progressive movement was in large part uh, le actually led by the banking and industrial cartelists and the anti-competition types that, you know, when private and local cartelization had failed, due to the entrepreneurial competitiveness in, in the late 1800s, they began to push for the federal government to actually impose barriers to entry. So when the National Banking Acts had not done the job, the pitch had to change. It no longer was the need for higher capital requirements and better standards and demanded acceptance at par value of national banknotes. Now the issue is still the existing decentralization of note issuance. The lack of elasticity of money supply and the suspension of specie payment were found to be effective arguments uh, for the implementation of the Fed. So the fact that you did you had this elasticity of money supply and that the banks had to suspend specie payment and, and weren't able to give depositors back their money, the Fed would step in and be the lender of last resort and would ensure that prices would remain stable with you know banking centralized. The Fed would be able to inflate when prices fell and deflate if, if inflation got out of hand ensuring that the banks there and therefore depositors would not have to suffer the consequences of their poor investments that weren't paying off in their mind, you know, at least not yet. So yeah, in 1913, the federal reserve was chartered. I'll touch a little bit more on the uh, reducto added serum that I just gave in a little bit, but in 13, the federal reserve was chartered, but officially opened the doors in, uh, in 1914 and on episode 27 on our next episode i'll be i will be discussing in depth the track record of the fed to say the least it's not great but we'll get go into that a little bit more detail uh, on our next episode i do want to finish out tonight's episode discussing the mechanics of the federal reserve and how they've evolved and we will do just that right after this quick commercial break Imagine learning more about economics in one short day than most people do in a lifetime. Imagine understanding how to demolish the common economic myths that many professional economists still believe after years of education. Imagine finally having a framework to confidently analyze the economic issues of our time rather than feeling overwhelmed by statist arguments. We'll stop imagining and start doing. Sign up and take the Mises Bootcamp online. In just three hours of lectures, a couple of slideshows, and a bit of reading, you'll be ready to take on the statist world of fallacies with no sweat. The best part is it's all free. For your convenience, you can find a link directly to the registration page in tonight's show notes at macroviewnews.com 
So what exactly does the Federal Reserve do and how does it do so? So the Federal Reserve Bank is the central bank of the United States. That means that they're the sole issuer of banknotes or currency as we know it. So originally they did so for, for uh, nationally chartered banks that held specie deposits at the Federal Reserve. And that was a requirement to gain access to Federal Reserve notes, dollars as we know them. So nationally chartered banks would pass then pass on these notes through loans to state chartered banks that had specie on deposit with the national bank. The Federal Reserve sets two key interest rates. The federal funds target rate, which is the rate at which depository institutions lend each other excess reserves overnight on an uncollateralized basis. And the discount rate, which is the rate at which member banks can borrow directly from the Federal Reserve on a collateralized basis if a shortfall in reserves is imminent. The discount rate is the rate at which banks borrow as a last resort. Typically, banks borrow from each other. This begs the question, why? Under the fractional reserve system, money is created when checkable liabilities, that is demand deposits, are lent out with a fraction of the balance remaining in cash and a loan balance being credited to a borrower's account and the full value of the demand deposit remaining on the balance sheet of the bank. This process of money creation, demand deposits being used to finance new loans, is inherently going to lead to banking panics. As eventually, typically when there's a slight economic downturn, inevitably both parties with claims to the money will demand its use. The central banking system is supposed to provide supposed to provide the liquidity and flexibility to maintain solvency until all depositors are made whole. Unfortunately, all it does is really exacerbate the misallocation of resources and lead to even bigger and more costly panics. Now, nobody, unless in in referencing the history behind the Fed's origin, nobody references the banking panic panic of 1907 or the banking panics in the post-Greenback era of the 1800s. We typically cite the Great Depression. We cite the Great Stagnation of the 60s and 70s. We cite 2008. Sometimes you'll get somebody who knows their history that talks about the, the 1920 Depression. A hundred percent of these events happened after the creation of the Federal Reserve. So sure, yes, there were panics in, in the 1800s, but the, decentral, the decentralized system made it pretty easy to recover from. No one node brought down the whole system like we've seen post-Fed. What is it about the Fed that sets in motion and exacerbates the inflationary cycle that leads to this disastrous bust? So ultimately, it boils down to a fallacy of compositions. It's the, the illogical implications of the idea that what is good for one must be good for the other or good for the all. So what happens is a cycle of borrowing without real savings you know, without real savings that the banks can actually lend off of, followed by a period of, of saving without any entrepreneurs willing to borrow. So this is caused by price fixing. Fixing the interest rate, or as one might say, the price of renting money according to the subjective time preferences and double inequality of temporal values, as uh, Eugen Bombawerk, Bombawerk, uh, excuse me, Eugen Bombawerk, so eloquently displayed in his uh, positive theory of capital, which quite possibly is, is his largest contribution to the study of economics and human action, uh, which was in succession to uh, capital interest, which just destroys any previous theory of capital and, and interest. 
And Bob Bobrick also delivers the uh, the most eloquent and beautiful destruction of the classical economics and the fallacies that empowered Karl Marx in his book, Karl Marx and the Close of His System. But enough about old Eugen. Uh, we all know that when you have a price ceiling, it leads to shortages. And when you have a price floor, it leads to surplus. So given that interest rates are the price of renting money, if the price of renting money has an effective ceiling put on it by the Federal Reserve in the form of an artificially low interest rate, you'll have a shortage of savings and a surplus of borrowing. This sets in motion the misallocation of real resources to higher order productions, that is the production of of capital goods and equipment, research and development, and projects that take a while to develop, could be new consumer goods that might take a while to develop. And it's done so, these, these investments are made based on current prices and current interest rates and, and maybe slight anticipation of a change, but they're not. It's they're based on what is known, not as not necessarily what is foreseen. And there is some foresight involved and judgment involved. But uh, talented entrepreneurs will will often sit on the sidelines during an unsustainable boom, where the cost of capital, uh, where the cost of, of capital goods is being bid up by a number of different uh, participants in the market. So this is what the unsustainable boom is, though. When when these higher order products projects, excuse me, are financed without real savings. They extract real resources away from more urgently demanded consumer demands and put them into the production of less urgently urgently demanded consumer demands or possibly even projects that are not aimed at providing consumers with the goods and services that they demand at all, but rather aimed at some mystical higher purpose called the common good that the state has endorsed which often has very, very little to do with any good, let alone a common good. When these projects are either deemed to be unprofitable or when prices for other consumer goods drive up the cost of capital equipment as entrepreneurs attempting to profit off the more urgently demanded consumer goods increase the number of bids on the capital equipment needed to meet consumer demands, prices go up, before layering on top the poor judgment of government and the endeavors in which they they command capital resources to meet their political demands, eventually at higher and higher producer prices with fewer and fewer consumer goods coming to market or less consumption due to debt overloads, as we discussed on episode 23, or any number of catalyst factors, eventually the tide goes out. Interest rates rise, typically a little too late to try and squelch rising inflation, and the unprofitable malinvestment made during the low interest rate cycle is exposed. Leading up to the crash, when the interest rates rise and the and the higher order higher order goods, the long term investments are deemed unsustainable. Eventually, people get laid off. When people get laid off, their checking accounts are used to support them. Maybe their savings accounts are, are shifted over to checking to support them until they find a new job. This means that individuals are demanding their demand deposit back faster and faster. And at the same time, other companies are struggling. And begin to have to rely on credit lines that they have for periods of weak cash flow. This means that oftentimes you end up with the fractional reserve death spiral. Where demand depositors in droves are demanding their money back. And simultaneously borrowers are in droves relying on the credit that they were extended based on those demand deposits. In order to get depositors paid back, banks have to then sell assets. They have to sell loans and credit lines that they've extended or bought. And sometimes they have to fire sell assets, which leads to sell-offs in markets as a big bank may not find the short-term liquidity sufficient to support a mass sale of their assets. 
as all asset prices fall and it becomes harder and harder for companies and or consumers and households to afford their debt and or as they refinance their debt at higher or more variable interest rates, companies and consumers begin to default on the debt at a higher rate. This leads to write downs of asset value sitting on bank balance sheets. The leverage employed primarily due to the unpredictable nature of demand deposits and there being the primary method of money creation through credit expansion, banks run into asset liability maturity matching issues on a very large scale. And with maximum leverage employed, this triggers the equivalent of widespread bank margin calls where their liabilities begin to become due immediately upon demand and the assets on the bank's balance sheet are no longer valuable enough now that reality is set in, and especially at liquidation values, to make good on these liabilities. It triggers fire selling, which as a result of demand deposit fractional reserve banking, creates the systemic breakdown, the, the likes of what we saw in 2008, what we saw in the 1930s following the 29 crash. The cure is, by Keynesian measures, to just simply reinflate, which leads to what we saw during the great stagnation of the 1970s. And what we saw in the crash of the late 1970s, and then the housing bubble and the crash during the Reagan era, and the tech bubble during the Clinton era, and all the way forward up to, up to now. On episode 27, we are going to dive a little bit deeper into how banking worked before the Fed, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the three different epochs or epochs of the Fed. Um, that is the pre-gold confiscation era the gold exchange standard where the dollar was pegged to gold but wasn't redeemable for gold and was redeemable for gold overseas you know, if you're a foreign government, and post-commodity standard, that is the, the post-Nixon era after Nixon removed us from the gold standard. We're going to discuss fall uh, – uh, we are going to discuss um, you know, a history of the follow-on regulations that were called for to pile on top of the Federal Reserve – and to aid the Federal Reserve in, in their goal of, quote-unquote, stabilizing prices. We'll also discuss the evolution of the Fed's mandate from simply stable prices to both, quote-unquote, stable prices and full employment. And we will discuss the increased state involvement in guaranteeing loans. And lastly, on episode 27, we will discuss the Fed's track record and the nuances behind the discussion of where the economy is currently and what is to be expected, if anything, and what the potential effects of the quarter quarter point rate hike uh, that the Fed announced might be. Um, but that's going to be all for t tonight, however. So I, I do hope everybody enjoyed the show and found it valuable. Tune into episode 27 to hear the second part of this two-part two, two part series where, um, you know, where I've, I've been discussing the Federal Reserve tonight and then tomorrow. And if you're not watching this episode from the show page, I do suggest you go and check it out. I'll put a link up there to the uh, free PDF copy of Rothbard's History of Money and Banking in the United States. And uh, the, it's offered up by the Mises Institute in a PDF version for free. So I'll put a link up there. And the show page can be found at macroviewnews.com. And while you're on the show page, don't forget to follow us on, on social media. And most importantly, don't forget to share us with your family, your friends, and your social networks and help me to, sh to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys their holidays. Take care, folks. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.